Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading the first five chapters of the life and achievements of Don Quixote de La Mancha. Don Quixote is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. While it's considered a great work, others have had another view. The Guardian reports despite its genius, author Martin Amos found it unpalatable and, according to The Guardian, wrote that while clearly an impregnable masterpiece, Don Quixote suffers from one fairly serious flaw, that of outright unreadability. The book bristles with beauties, charm, sublime comedy, it is also, for long stretches, approaching about 75% of the whole, and humanly dull. We might just have to read this whole thing. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by The Sleep Channel on Spotify. The Life and Achievements of Don Quixote de L.A. Mancha Chapter 1 The Quality and Way of Living of Don Quixote In a certain village in La Mancha, in the kingdom of Aragon, of which I cannot remember the name, there lived not long ago one of those old-fashioned gentlemen who are never without a lance upon a rack, an old target, a lean horse, and a greyhound. His diet consisted more of beef than mutton, and, with mincemeat on most nights, lentils on Fridays, and a pigeon extraordinary on Sundays, he consumed three-quarters of his revenue, the rest was laid out in a plush coat, velvet breeches, with slippers of the same, for holidays, and a suit of the very best homespun cloth, which he bestowed on himself for working days. His whole family was a housekeeper something turned of forty, a niece not twenty, and a man that served him in the house and in the field, and could saddle a horse and handle the pruning hook. The master himself was nigh fifty years of age, of a hale and strong complexion, lean-bodied and thin-faced, an early riser, and a lover of hunting. Some say his surname was Quixada or Quesada, for authors differ in this particular, however, we may reasonably conjecture he was called Quixada, i.e. Lantern Jaws, though this concerns us but little, provided we keep strictly to the truth in every point of this history. Be it known, then, that when our gentleman had nothing to do, which was almost all the year round, 
He passed his time in reading books of knight errantry, which he did with that application and delight that at last he in a manner wholly left off his country sports and even the care of his estate, nay, he grew so strangely enamored of these amusements that he sold many acres of land to purchase books of that kind, by which means he collected as many of them as he could, but none pleased him. Like the works of the famous Feliciano da Silva, for the brilliancy of his prose and those intricate expressions with which it is interlaced seem to him so many pearls of eloquence, especially when he came to read the love addresses and challenges, many of them in this extraordinary style. The reason of your unreasonable usage of my reason does so enfeeble my reason that I have reason to expostulate with your beauty. And this, the sublime heavens, which with your divinity divinely fortify you with the stars and fix you the deserver of the desert that is deserved by your grandeur. These, and such like rhapsodies, strangely puzzled the poor gentleman's understanding while he was racking his brain to unravel their meaning, which Aristotle himself could never have found, though he should have been raised from the dead for that very purpose. He did not so well like those dreadful wounds which Don Bilianis gave and received, for he considered that all the art of surgery could never secure his face and body from being strangely disfigured with scars. However, he highly commended the author for concluding his book with a promise to finish that unfinishable adventure and many times he had a desire to put pen to paper and faithfully and literally finish it himself, which he had certainly done and doubtless with good success had not his thoughts been wholly engrossed in much more important designs. He would often dispute with the curate of the parish, a man of learning, that had taken his degrees at Gigenza, as to which was the better knight, Palmerin of England, or Amadis de Gaul, but Master Nicholas, the barber of the same town, would say that none of them could compare with the Knight of the Sun, and that if anyone came near him, it was certainly Don Galler, the brother of Amadis de Gaul, for he was a man of a most commodious temper, neither was he so finical, nor such a whining. Lover, as his brother, and as for courage, he was not a jot behind him. In fine, he gave himself up so wholly to the reading of romances that at night he would pour on until it was day, and would read on all day until it was night, and thus a world of extraordinary notions picked out of his books, crowded into his imagination, now his head was full of nothing but enchantments, quarrels, battles, challenges, wounds, complaints, love passages, torments, and abundance of absurd impossibilities, insomuch that all the fables and fantastical tales which he read seemed to him now as true as the most authentic histories. He would say that the Sidruidias was a very brave knight, but not worthy to stand in competition with the knight of the burning sword, who, with a single backstroke had cut in sunder two fierce and mighty giants. He liked yet better Bernardo del Carpio, who, at Roncesvalles, deprived of life the enchanted Orlando, having lifted him from the ground and choked him in the air, as Hercules did Antaeus, the son of the earth. As for the giant Morganta, he always spoke very civil things of him, for among that monstrous brood, 
who were ever intolerably proud and insolent, he alone behaved himself like a civil and well-bred person. But of all men in the world he admired Rinaldo of Montalban, and particularly his carrying away the idol of Mohammed, which was all massy gold, as the history says, while he so hated that traitor Galilon, that for the pleasure of kicking him handsomely, he would have given up his housekeeper and his niece into the bargain. Having thus confused his understanding, he unluckily stumbled upon the oddest fancy that ever entered into a madman's brain, for now he thought it convenient and necessary, as well for the increase of his own honor as the service of the public, to turn knight errant and roam through the whole world, armed cap and mounted on his steed, in quest of adventures, that thus imitating those knight errants of whom he had read, and following their course of life, redressing all manner of grievances and exposing himself to danger on all occasions, at last, after a happy conclusion of his enterprises, he might purchase everlasting honor and renown. The first thing he did was to scour a suit of armor that had belonged to his great-grandfather and had lain time out of mind carelessly rusting in a corner, but when he had cleaned and repaired it as well as he could, he perceived there was a material piece wanting, for, instead of a complete helmet, there was only a single headpiece. However, his industry supplied that defect, for with some pasteboard he made a kind of half-beaver or visor, which, being fitted to the headpiece, made it look like an entire helmet. Then, to know whether it were cutlass-proof, he drew his sword and tried its edge upon the pasteboard visor but with the very first stroke he unluckily undid in a moment what he had been a whole week in doing. He did not like its being broke with so much ease, and therefore, to secure it from the like accident, he made it anew, and fenced it with thin plates of iron, which he fixed on the inside of it so artificially, that at last he had reason to be satisfied with the solidity of the work, and so, Without any farther experiment, he resolved it should pass to all intents and purposes for a full and sufficient helmet. The next moment he went to view his horse, whose bones stuck out like the corners of a Spanish reel, being a worse jade than Ganila's Catantum Pelicitasafut, however, his master thought that neither Alexander's Bucephalus nor the Cid's Babieca could be compared with him. He was four days considering what name to give him, for, as he argued with himself, there was no reason that a horse bestrid by so famous a knight, and withal so excellent in himself, should not be distinguished by a particular name, so, after many names which he devised, rejected, changed, liked, disliked, and pitched upon again, he concluded to call him Rosinante. Having thus given his horse a name, he thought of choosing one for himself, and having seriously pondered on the matter eight whole days more, at last he determined to call himself Don Quixote. Whence the author of this history draws this inference, that his right name was Quixada, and not Quesada, as others obstinately pretend. And observing that the valiant Amadis, not satisfied with the bare appellation of Amadis, added to it the name of his country, that it might grow more famous by his exploits, and so styled himself Amadis de Gaulle, so he, like a true lover of his native soil, 
resolved to call himself Don Quixote de la Mancha, which addition to his thinking denoted very plainly his parentage and country and consequently would fix a lasting honor on that part of the world. And now, his armor being scoured, his headpiece improved to a helmet, his horse and himself new named, he perceived he wanted nothing but a lady on whom he might bestow the empire of his heart, for he was sensible that a knight errant without a mistress was a tree without either fruit or leaves, and a body without a soul. Should I, said he to himself, by good or ill fortune, chance to encounter some giant, as it is common in knight errantry, and happen to lay him prostrate on the ground, transfixed with my lance, or cleft in two, or, in short, overcome him, and have him at my mercy, would it not be proper to have some lady to whom I may send him as a trophy of my valor? Then when he comes into her presence, throwing himself at her feet, he may thus make his humble submission, Lady, I am the giant Caraculiambro, lord of the island of Melandrania, vanquished in single combat by that never-deservedly enough extolled knight-errant Don Quixote de la Mancha, who has commanded me to cast myself most humbly at your feet, that it may please your honor to dispose of me according to your will. Near the place where he lived dwelt a good-looking country girl, for whom he had formerly had a sort of an inclination, though, it is believed, she never heard of it, nor regarded it in the least. Her name was Aldonza Lorenzo, and this was she whom he thought he might entitle to the sovereignty of his heart, upon which he studied to find her out a new name that might have some affinity with her old one, and yet at the same time sound somewhat like that of a princess or lady of quality, so at last he resolved to call her Dulcinea, with the addition of Del Toboso, from the place where she was born, a name, in his opinion, sweet, harmonious, and dignified, like the others which he had. Devised Chapter 2 which treats of Don Quixote's first sally. These preparations being made, he found his designs ripe for action and thought it now a crime to deny himself any longer to the injured world that wanted such a deliverer, the more when he considered what grievances he was to redress, what wrongs and injuries to remove, what abuses to correct, and what duties to discharge. So one morning before day, in the greatest heat of July, Without acquainting anyone with his design, with all the secrecy imaginable, he armed himself cap a pie, laced on his ill-contrived helmet, braced on his target, grasped his lance, mounted Rosinante, and at the private door of his backyard sallied out into the fields, wonderfully pleased to see with how much ease he had succeeded in the beginning of his enterprise. But he had not gone far ere a terrible thought alarmed him, a thought that had liked to have made him renounce his great undertaking, for now it came into his mind that the honor of knighthood had not yet been conferred upon him, and therefore, according to the laws of chivalry, he neither could nor ought to appear in arms against any professed knight, nay, he also considered that though he were already knighted, it would become him to wear white armor and not to adorn his shield with any device until he had deserved one by some extraordinary demonstration of his valor. These thoughts staggered his resolution, 
but his frenzy prevailing more than reason, he resolved to be dubbed a knight by the first he should meet, after the example of several others, who, as the romances informed him, had formerly done the like. As for the other difficulty about wearing white armor, he proposed to overcome it by scouring his own at leisure until it should look whiter than ermine. And having thus dismissed these scruples, he rode calmly on, leaving it to his horse to go which way he pleased, firmly believing that in this consisted the very essence of adventures. And as he thus went on, no doubt, said he to himself, that when the history of my famous achievements shall be given to the world, the learned author will begin it in this very manner, when he comes to give an account of this my setting out, scarce had the ruddy Phoebus begun to spread the golden tresses of his lovely hair over the vast surface of the earthly globe, and scarce had those feathered poets of the grove, the pretty painted birds, tuned their little pipes to sing their early. Welcomes in soft melodious strains to the beautiful Aurora, displaying her rosy graces to mortal eyes from the gates and balconies of the Manchegan horizon, when the renowned knight Don Quixote de la Mancha, disdaining soft repose, forsook the voluptuous down, and mounting his famous steed Rosinante, entered the ancient and celebrated plains of Montiel. This was indeed the very road he took, and then proceeding, O happy age! O fortunate times, cried he, decreed to usher into the world my famous achievements, achievements worthy to be engraven on brass, carved on marble, and delineated in some masterpiece of painting as monuments of my glory and examples for posterity. And thou, venerable sage, wise enchanter, whatever be thy name, thou whom fate has ordained to be the compiler of this rare history, forget not. I beseech thee, my trusty Rosinante, the eternal companion of all my adventures. After this, as if he had been really in love, O Princess Dulcinea, cried he, lady of this captive heart, much sorrow and woe you have doomed me to in banishing me thus, and imposing on me your rigorous commands, never to appear before your beauteous face. Remember, lady, that loyal heart your slave who for your love submits to so many miseries. To these extravagant conceits, he added a world of others, all in imitation and in the very style of those which the reading of romances had furnished him with, and all this while he rode so softly, and the sun's heat increased so fast and was so violent that it would have been sufficient to have melted his brains had he had any left. He traveled almost all that day without meeting any adventure worth the trouble of relating, which put him into a kind of despair, for he desired nothing more than to encounter immediately some person on whom he might try the vigor of his arm. Towards the evening, he and his horse being heartily tired and almost famished, Don Quixote looked about him in hopes to discover some castle or at least some shepherd's cottage, there to repose and refresh himself and at last near the road which he kept, he espied an inn, a most welcome sight to his longing eyes. Hastening towards it with all the speed he could, he got thither just at the close of the evening. There stood by chance at the inn door two young female adventurers who were going to Seville with some carriers that happened to take up their lodging there that very evening, and as whatever our knight-errant saw, thought, 
or imagined was all of a romantic cast and appeared to him altogether after the manner of his favorite books. He no sooner saw the inn but he fancied it to be a castle fenced with four towers and lofty pinnacles glittering with silver together with a deep moat, drawbridge, and all those other appurtenances peculiar to such kind of places. When he came near it, he stopped a while at a distance from the gate, expecting that some dwarf would appear on the battlements and sound his trumpet to give notice of the arrival of a knight, but finding that nobody came and that Rosinante was for making the best of his way to the stable, he advanced to the door at which the innkeeper immediately appeared. He was a man whose burden of fat inclined him to peace and quietness, yet when he observed such a strange disguise of human shape in his old armor and equipage, he could hardly forbear laughter, but having the fear of such a warlike appearance before his eyes, he resolved to give him good words, and therefore accosted him civilly. Sir Knight, said he, if your worship be disposed to alight, you will fail of nothing here but of a bed. As for all other accommodations, you may be supplied to your mind. Don Quixote observing the humility of the governor of the castle, for such the innkeeper and insane to him, Senior Castellano, said he, the least thing in the world suffices me, for arms are the only things I value, and combat is my bed of repose. At this rate, Sir Knight, you may safely alight, and I dare assure you, you can hardly miss being kept awake all the year long in this house, much less one single night. With that he went and held Don Quixote's stirrup, who having ate nothing all that day, dismounted with no small trouble and difficulty. He immediately desired the governor, that is, the innkeeper, to have special care of his steed, assuring him that there was not a better in the universe upon which the innkeeper viewed him narrowly, but could not think him to be half so good as Don Quixote said. However, having set him up in the stable, he came back to the knight to see what he wanted and whether he would eat anything. That I will, with all my heart, cried Don Quixote, whatever it be, for I am of opinion nothing can come to me more seasonably. Now, it happened to be Friday, and there was nothing to be had at the inn but some pieces of fish, which they called Traquela, so they asked him whether he could eat any of that Traquela, because they had no other fish to give him. Don Quixote, imagining they meant small trout, told them that provided there were more than one, it was the same thing to him, they would serve him as well as a great one, for, continued he, it is all one to me whether I am paid a piece of eight in one single piece or in eight small reals, which are worth as much. Besides, it is probable these small trouts may be like veal, which is finer meat than beef, or like the kid, which is better than the goat. In short, let it be what it will, so it comes quickly, for the weight of armor and the fatigue of travel are not to be supported without recruiting food. Thereupon they laid the cloth at the inn door for the benefit of the fresh air, and the landlord brought him a piece of the salt fish, but ill-watered and as ill-dressed, and as for the bread, it was as moldy and brown as the knight's armor. While he was at supper, a pig driver happened to sound his cane trumpet or whistle of reeds, 
four or five times as he came near the inn, which made Don Quixote the more positive that he was in a famous castle where he was entertained with music at supper, that the country girls were great ladies, and the innkeeper the governor of the castle, which made him applaud himself for his resolution and his setting out on such an account. The only thing that vexed him was that he was not yet dubbed a knight for he fancied he could not lawfully undertake any adventure till he had received the order of knighthood. Underscore 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 Chapter 3 An Account of the Pleasant Method Taken by Don Quixote to be Dubbed a Knight Don Quixote's mind being disturbed with that thought, he abridged even his short supper, and as soon as he had done, he called his host, then shut him and himself up in the stable, and falling at his feet, I will never rise from this place, cried he, most valorous knight, till you have graciously vouchsafed to grant me a boon which I will now beg of you, and which will redound to your honor and the good of mankind. The innkeeper, strangely at a loss to find his guest at his feet, and talking at this rate, endeavored to make him rise, but all in vain, till he had promised to grant him what he asked. I expected no less from your great magnificence, noble sir, replied Don Quixote, and therefore I make bold to tell you, that the boon which I beg, and you generously condescend to grant me, is, that tomorrow you will be pleased to bestow the honor of knighthood upon me. This night I will watch my armor in the chapel of your castle, and then in the morning you shall gratify me, that I may be duly qualified to seek out adventures in every corner of the universe, to relieve the distressed, according to the laws of chivalry and the inclinations of knights errant like myself. The innkeeper, who, as I said, was a sharp fellow, and had already a shrewd suspicion of his guest's disorder, was fully convinced of it when he heard him talk in this manner, and, to make sport he resolved to humor him, telling him he was much to be commended for his choice of such an employment, which was altogether worthy a knight of the first order, such as his gallant deportment discovered him to be, that he himself had in his youth followed that profession, ranging through many parts of the world in search of adventures, till at length he retired to this castle, where he lived on his own estate and those of others, entertaining all knights errant of what quality or condition soever, purely for the great affection he bore them, and to partake of what they might share with him in return. He added, that his castle at present had no chapel where the knight might keep the vigil of his arms, it being pulled down in order to be new built but that he knew they might lawfully be watched in any other place in a case of necessity, and therefore he might do it that night in the courtyard of the castle, and in the morning all the necessary ceremonies should be performed, so that he might assure himself he should be dubbed a knight, nay as much a knight as anyone in the world could be. He then asked Don Quixote whether he had any money? Not a cross, 
replied the knight, for I never read in any history of chivalry that any knight errant ever carried money about him. You are mistaken, cried the innkeeper, for admit the histories are silent in this matter, the authors thinking it needless to mention things so evidently necessary as money and clean shirts, yet there is no reason to believe the knights went without either, and you may rest assured that all the knights errant, of whom so many histories are full, had their purses well lined to supply themselves with necessaries, and carried also with them some shirts and a small box of salves to heal their wounds, for they had not the conveniency of surgeons to cure them every time they fought in fields and deserts, unless they were so happy as to have some sage or magician for their friend to give them present assistance, sending them some damsel or dwarf through the air in a cloud, with a small bottle of water of so great a virtue, that they no sooner tasted a drop of it, but their wounds were as perfectly cured as if they had never received any. But when they wanted such a friend in former ages, the knights thought themselves obliged to take care that their squires should be provided with money and other necessaries, and if those knights ever happened to have no squires, which was but very seldom, then they carried those things behind them in a little bag. I must therefore advise you, continued he, never from this time forwards to ride without money, nor without the other necessaries of which I spoke to you, which you will find very beneficial when you least expect it. Don Quixote promised to perform all his injunctions, and so they disposed everything in order to his watching his arms in the great yard. To which purpose the knight, having got them all together, laid them in a horse trough close by a well, then bracing his target and grasping his lance, just as it grew dark, he began to walk about by the horse trough with a graceful deportment. In the meanwhile, the innkeeper acquainted all those that were in the house with the extravagancies of his guest, his watching his arms, and his hopes of being made a knight. They all marveled very much at so strange a kind of folly and went on to observe him at a distance, where they saw him sometimes walk about with a great deal of gravity and sometimes lean on his lance, with his eyes all the while fixed upon his arms. It was now undoubted night, but yet the moon did shine with such a brightness as might almost have vied with that of the luminary which lent it her, so that the night was wholly exposed to the spectator's view. While he was thus employed, one of the carriers who lodged in the inn came out to water his mules, which he could not do without removing the arms out of the trough. With that, Don Quixote, who saw him make towards them, cried out to him aloud, O thou, whoever thou art, rash knight, that prepares to lay thy hands on the arms of the most valorous knight-errant that ever wore a sword, take heed, do not audaciously attempt to profane them with a touch, lest instant death be the too sure reward of thy temerity. But the carrier regarded not these threats, and laying hold of the armor without any more ado, threw it a good way from him, though it had been better for him to have let it alone, for Don Quixote no sooner saw this, but lifting up his eyes to heaven, and thus addressing his thoughts, as it seemed, to his lady Dulcinea, assist me, lady, cried he, in the first opportunity that offers itself to your faithful slave, nor let your favor and protection be denied me in this first trial of my valor. 
Repeating such like ejaculations, he let slip his target, and lifting up his lance with both his hands, he gave the carrier such a terrible knock on his inconsiderate head with his lance, that he laid him at his feet in a woeful condition, and had he backed that blow with another, the fellow would certainly have had no need of a surgeon. This done, Don Quixote took up his armor, laid it again in the horse trough, and then walked on backwards and forwards with as great unconcern as he did at first. Soon after another carrier, not knowing what had happened, came also to water his mules, while the first yet lay on the ground in a trance, but as he offered to clear the trough of the armor, Don Quixote, without speaking a word or imploring anyone's assistance, once more dropped his target, lifted up his lance, and then let it fall so heavily on the fellow's pate that without damaging his lance, he broke the carrier's head in three or four places. His outcry soon alarmed and brought thither all the people in the inn and the landlord among the rest, which Don Quixote perceiving, thou queen of beauty, cried he, bracing on his shield and drawing his sword, thou courage and vigor of my weakened heart, now is the time when thou must enliven thy adventurous slave with the beams of thy greatness while this moment he is engaging in so terrible an adventure. With this, in his opinion, he found himself supplied with such an addition of courage that had all the carriers in the world at once attacked him, he would undoubtedly have faced them all. On the other side, the carriers, enraged to see their comrades thus used, though they were afraid to come near, gave the knight such a volley of stones that he was forced to shelter himself as well as he could under the covert of his target without daring to go far from the horse trough lest he should seem to abandon his arms. The innkeeper called to the carriers as loud as he could to let him alone that he had told them already he was mad and consequently the law would acquit him though he should kill them. Don Quixote also made yet more noise calling them false and treacherous villains and the lord of the castle base and unhospitable and a discourteous knight for suffering a knight errant to be so abused. I would make thee know, cried he, what a perfidious wretch thou art had I but received the order of knighthood, but for you, base, ignominious rabble, fling on, do your worst, come on, draw nearer if you dare, and receive the reward of your indiscretion and insolence. This he spoke with so much spirit and undauntedness that he struck a terror into all his assailants, so that, partly through fear and partly through the innkeeper's persuasions, they gave over flinging stones at him, and he, on his side, permitted the enemy to carry off their wounded and then returned to the guard of his arms as calm and composed as before. The innkeeper, who began somewhat to disrelish these mad tricks of his guest, resolved to dispatch him forthwith and bestow on him that unlucky knighthood to prevent farther mischief, so coming to him, he excused himself for the insolence of those base scoundrels as being done without his privity or consent, but their audaciousness, he said, was sufficiently punished. He added that he had already told him there was no chapel in his castle and that indeed there was no need of one to finish the rest of the ceremony of knighthood which consisted only in the application of the sword to the neck and shoulders as he had read in the register of the ceremonies of the order and that this might be performed as well in a field as anywhere else.
that he had already fulfilled the obligation of watching his arms, which required no more than two hours watch, whereas he had been four hours upon the guard. Don Quixote, who easily believed him, told him he was ready to obey him and desired him to make an end of the business as soon as possible, for if he were but knighted and should see himself once attacked, he believed he should not leave a man alive in the castle except those whom he should desire him to spare for his sake. Upon this, the innkeeper, lest the knight should proceed to such extremities, fetched the book in which he used to set down the carrier's accounts for straw and barley, and having brought with him the two kind females already mentioned, and a boy that held a piece of lighted candle in his hand, he ordered Don Quixote to kneel, then reading in his manual, as if he had been repeating some pious oration. In the midst of his devotion he lifted up his hand and gave him a good blow on the neck and then a gentle slap on the back with the flat of his sword, still mumbling some words between his teeth in the tone of a prayer. After this he ordered one of the ladies to gird the sword about the knight's waist, which she did with much solemnity and, I may add, discretion, considering how hard a thing it was to forbear laughing at every circumstance of the ceremony, it is true, the thoughts of the knight's late prowess did not a little contribute to the suppression of her mirth. As she girded on his sword, heaven, cried the kind lady, make your worship a lucky knight, and prosper you wherever you go. Don Quixote desired to know her name, that he might understand to whom he was indebted for the favor she had bestowed upon him, and also make her partaker of the honor he was to acquire by the strength of his arm. To which the lady answered with all humility that her name was Tolosa, a cobbler's daughter that kept a stall among the little shops of Sancobanea at Toledo, and that whenever he pleased to command her, she would be his humble servant. Don Quixote begged of her to do him the favor to add hereafter the title of lady to her name and for his sake to be called from that time the Lady Toloso, which she promised to do. Her companion having buckled on his spurs, occasioned a light conference between them and when he had asked her name, she told him she went by the name of Melivera, being the daughter of an honest miller of Antecara. Our new knight entreated her also to style herself the Lady Melivera, making her new offers of service. These extraordinary ceremonies, the like never seen before, being thus hurried over in a kind of post-haste, Don Quixote could not rest till he had taken the field in quest of adventures, therefore having immediately saddled his Rosinante, and being mounted, he embraced the innkeeper and returned him so many thanks at so extravagant a rate for the obligation he had laid upon him in dubbing him a knight, that it is impossible to give a true relation of them all, to which the innkeeper, in haste to get rid of him, returned his rhetorical though shorter answers, and without stopping his horse for the reckoning, was glad with all his heart to see him go. Chapter 4 what befell the night after he had left the inn? Aurora began to usher in the morn when Don Quixote sallied out of the inn, so overjoyed to find himself knighted that he infused the same satisfaction into his horse who seemed ready to burst his girths for joy. 
but calling to mind the admonitions which the innkeeper had given him concerning the provision of necessary accommodation in his travels, particularly money and clean shirts, he resolved to return home to furnish himself with them and likewise get him a squire, designed to entertain as such a laboring man, his neighbor, who was poor and had a number of children, but yet very fit for the office. With this resolution he took the road which led to his own village. The knight had not traveled far when he fancied he heard an effeminate voice complaining in a thicket on his right hand. I thank heaven, said he, when he heard the cries, for favoring me so soon with an opportunity to perform the duty of my profession and reap the fruits of my desire. For these complaints are certainly the moans of some distressed creature who wants my present help. Then turning to that side with all the speed which Rosinante could make, he no sooner came into the wood, but he found a mare tied to an oak, and to another a young lad about fifteen years of age, naked from the waist upwards. This was he who made such a lamentable outcry, and not without cause, for a lusty country fellow was strapping him soundly with a girdle at every stripe putting him in mind of a proverb, keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. Good master, cried the boy, I'll do so no more, indeed, master, hereafter I'll take more care of your goods. Don Quixote seeing this, cried in an angry tone, discourteous knight, tis an unworthy act to strike a person who is not able to defend himself. Come, bestride thy steed, and take thy lance, then I'll make thee know thou hast acted the part of a coward. The country fellow, who gave himself for lost at the sight of an apparition in armor brandishing his lance at his face, answered him in mild and submissive words, Sir Knight, cried he, this boy, whom I am chastising, is my servant, and because I correct him for his carelessness or his knavery, he says I do it out of covetousness to defraud him of his wages, but, upon my life and soul, he belies me. Sayest thou this in my presence, vile rustic, cried Don Quixote, for thy insolent speech, I have a good mind to run thee through the body with my lance. Pay the boy this instant, without any more words, or I will immediately dispatch and annihilate thee, unbind him, I say, this moment. The countryman hung down his head, and without any further reply unbound the boy, who being asked by Don Quixote what his master owed him, told him it was nine months wages at seven reals a month. The knight having cast it up, found it came to sixty-three reals in all, which he ordered the farmer to pay the fellow immediately, unless he intended to lose his life that very moment. The worst is, Sir Knight, cried the farmer, that I have no money about me, but let Andres go home with me, and I'll pay him every piece out of hand. What? I go home with him, cried the youngster, I know better things, for he'd no sooner have me by himself, but he'd flay me alive, like another street Bartholomew. He will not dare, replied Don Quixote, I command him, and that's sufficient, therefore, provided he will swear by the order of knighthood which has been conferred upon him that he will duly observe this regulation, I will freely let him go, and then thou art secure of thy money. Good sir, take heed what you say, cried the boy, for my master is no knight, 
nor ever was of any order in his life, he's John Haldudo, the rich farmer of Quintaner. This signifies little, answered Don Quixote, for there may be knights among the Haldudos. Besides, the brave man carves out his fortune, and every man is the son of his own works. That's true, sir, quoth Andres, but of what works can this master of mine be the son, who denies me my wages, which I have earned with the sweat of my brows? I do not deny to pay thee thy wages, honest Andres, cried the master, do but go along with me, and by all the orders of knighthood in the world, I promise to pay thee every piece, as I said. Be sure, said Don Quixote, you perform your promise, for if you fail, I will assuredly return and find you out, and punish you moreover, though you should hide yourself as close as a lizard. And if you will be informed who it is that lays these injunctions on you, that you may understand how highly it concerns you to observe them, no, I am Don Quixote de la Mancha, the writer of wrongs, the revenger and redresser of grievances, and so farewell, but remember what you have promised and sworn, as you will answer for it at your peril. This said, he clapped spurs to Rosinante, and quickly left them behind. The countryman, who followed him with both his eyes, no sooner perceived that he was past the woods, and quite out of sight, than he went back to his boy Andres. Come, child, said he, I will pay thee what I owe thee, as that writer of wrongs and redresser of grievances has ordered me. I, quoth Andres, on my word, you will do well to fulfill the commands of that good knight, whom heaven grant long to live, for he is so brave a man, and so just a judge, that if you don't pay me, he will come back and make his words good. I dare swear as much, answered the master, and to shew thee how much I love thee, I am willing to increase the debt, that I may enlarge the payment. With that he caught the youngster by the arm, and tied him again to the tree, where he handled him so unmercifully, that scarce any signs of life were left in him. Now call your writer of wrongs, Mr. Andres, cried the farmer, and you shall see he will never be able to undo what I have done, though I think it is but a part of what I ought to do, for I have a good mind to flay you alive, as you said I would, you rascal. However, he untied him at last, and gave him leave to go and seek out his judge, in order to have his decree put in execution. Andres went his ways, not very well pleased, you may be sure, yet fully resolved to find out the valorous Don Quixote, and give him an exact account of the whole transaction, that he might pay the abuse with sevenfold usury. In short, he crept off sobbing and weeping, while his master stayed behind laughing. And in this manner was this wrong redressed by the valorous Don Quixote de la Mancha. In the meantime the knight, being highly pleased with himself and what had happened, imagining he had given a most fortunate and noble beginning to his feats of arms, went on towards his village, and soon found himself at a place where four roads met, and this made him presently bethink of those crossways which often used to put knights errant to a stand to consult with themselves which way they should take. That he might follow their example, he stopped a while, and after he had seriously reflected on the matter, gave Rosinante the reins, subjecting his own will to that of his horse, who, 
pursuing his first intent, took the way that led to his own stable. Don Quixote had not gone above two miles when he discovered a company of people riding towards him who proved to be merchants of Toledo going to buy silks in Murcia. They were six in all, everyone screened with an umbrella, besides four servants on horseback and three muleteers on foot. The knight no sooner perceived them, but he imagined this to be some new adventure, so, fixing himself in his stirrups, couching his lance, and covering his breast with his target, he posted himself in the middle of the road, expecting the coming up of the supposed knight's errant. As soon as they came within hearing, with a loud voice and haughty tone, hold, cried he, let no man hope to pass further, unless he acknowledge and confess that there is not in the universe a more beautiful damsel than the Empress of La Mancha, the peerless Dulcinea del Toboso. At those words, the merchants made a halt to view the unaccountable figure of their opponent and conjecturing, both by his expression and disguise, that the poor gentleman had lost his senses, they were willing to understand the meaning of that strange confession which he would force from them, and therefore one of the company, who loved raillery and had discretion to manage it, undertook to talk to him. Senior Cavalier, cried he, we do not know this worthy lady you talk of, but be pleased to let us see her, and then if we find her possessed of those matchless charms of which you assert her to be the mistress, we will freely, and without the least compulsion, own the truth which you would extort from us. Had I once shown you that beauty, replied Don Quixote, what wonder would it be to acknowledge so notorious a truth? The importance of the thing lies in obliging you to believe it, confess it, affirm it, swear it, and maintain it without seeing her, and therefore make this acknowledgement this very moment, or know that with me you must join in battle, ye proud and unreasonable mortals. Come one by one, as the laws of chivalry require, or all at once, according to the dishonorable practice of men of your stamp, here I expect you all my single self, and will stand the encounter, confiding in the justice of my cause. Sir Knight, replied the merchant, I beseech you, that for the discharge of our consciences, which will not permit us to affirm a thing we never heard or saw, and which, besides, tends so much to the dishonor of the empresses and queens of Alcaria and Estremadura, your worship will vouchsafe to let us see some portraiture of that lady, though it were no bigger than a grain of wheat, for by a small sample we may judge of the whole piece, and by that means rest secure and satisfied, and you contented and appeased. Nay, I verily believe that we all find ourselves already so inclinable to comply with you that though her picture should represent her to be blind of one eye and distilling vermilion and brimstone at the other, yet to oblige you, we shall be ready to say in her favor whatever your worship desires. Distill, ye infamous scoundrels, replied Don Quixote in a burning rage, distill say you? No, that nothing distills from her but amber and civet, neither is she defective in her make or shape, but more straight than a Guadaramian spindle. But you shall all severely pay for the blasphemy which thou hast uttered against the transcendent beauty of my incomparable lady. Saying this, with his lance couched, 
he ran so furiously at the merchant who thus provoked him that had not good fortune so ordered it that Rosinante should stumble and fall in the midst of his career. The audacious trifler had paid dear for his raillery, but as Rosinante fell, he threw down his master, who rolled and tumbled a good way on the ground without being able to get upon his legs, though he used all his skill and strength to effect it, so encumbered he was with his lance, target, spurs, helmet, and the weight of his rusty armor. However, in this helpless condition he played the hero with his tongue, stay, cried he, cowards, rascals, do not fly. It is not through my fault that I lie here, but through that of my horse, ye poltroons. One of the muleteers, who was none of the best-natured creatures, hearing the overthrown knight thus insolently treat his master, could not bear it without returning him an answer on his ribs, and therefore coming up to him as he lay wallowing, he snatched his lance, and having broke it to pieces, so belabored Don Quixote's sides with one of them, that, in spite of his arms, he thrashed him like a wheat sheaf. His master indeed called to him not to lay on him so vigorously, and to let him alone, but the fellow, whose hand was in, would not give over till he had tired out his passion and himself, and therefore running to the other pieces of the broken lance, he fell to it again without ceasing, till he had splintered them all on the knight's iron enclosure. At last the mule driver was tired, and the merchants pursued their journey, sufficiently furnished with matter of discourse at the poor knight's expense. When he found himself alone, he tried once more to get on his feet, but if he could not do it when he had the use of his limbs, how should he do it now, bruised and battered as he was? But yet for all this, he esteemed himself a happy man, being still persuaded that his misfortune was one of those accidents common in knight errantry, and such a one as he could wholly attribute to the falling of his horse. Chapter 5 A Further Account of Our Knight's Misfortunes Don Quixote perceiving that he was not able to stir, resolved to have recourse to his usual remedy, which was to bethink himself what passage in his books might afford him some comfort, and presently his frenzy brought to his remembrance the story of Baldwin and the Marquis of Mantua, when Charlot left the former wounded on the mountain, a story learned and known by little children, not unknown to young men and women, celebrated, and even believed, by the old, and yet not a jot more authentic than the miracles of Muhammad. This seemed to him as if made on purpose for his present circumstances, and therefore he fell a-rolling and tumbling up and down, expressing the greatest pain and resentment, and breathing out, with a languishing voice, the same complaints which the wounded knight of the wood is said to have made. Alas! Where are you, lady dear? That for my woe you do not moan? You little know what ails me here, or are to me disloyal grown. Thus he went on with the lamentations in that romance, till he came to these verses. O thou, my uncle and my prince, Marquis of Mantua, noble lord, when kind fortune so ordered it that a plowman, who lived in the same village and near his house, happened to pass by, as he came from the mill with a sack of wheat.
The fellow seeing a man lie at his full length on the ground asked him who he was and why he made such a sad complaint. Don Quixote, whose distempered brain presently represented to him the countryman as the Marquis of Mantua, his imaginary uncle, made him no answer but went on with the romance. The fellow stared, much amazed to hear a man talk such unaccountable stuff, and taking off the visor of his helmet, broken all to pieces with blows bestowed upon it by the mule driver, he wiped off the dust that covered his face, and presently knew the gentleman. Master Kixada, cried he, for so he was properly called when he had the right use of his senses, and had not yet from a sober gentleman transformed himself into a wandering knight, how came you in this condition? But the other continued his romance, and made no answers to all the questions the countryman put to him, but what followed in course in the book. Which the good man perceiving, he took off the battered adventurer's armor as well as he could, and fell a-searching for his wounds, but finding no sign of blood, or any other hurt, he endeavored to set him upon his legs, and at last, with a great deal of trouble, he heaped him upon his own ass, as being the more easy and gentle carriage, he also got all the knight's arms together, not leaving behind so much as the splinters of his lance, and having tied them up, and laid them on Rosinante, which he took by the bridle, and his ass by the halter, he led them all towards the village, and trudged on foot himself, while he reflected on the extravagances which he heard Don Quixote utter. Nor was the Don himself less melancholy, for he felt himself so bruised and battered that he could hardly sit on the ass, and now and then he breathed such grievous sighs as seemed to pierce the very skies, which moved his compassionate neighbor once more to entreat him to declare to him the cause of his grief, so he bethought himself of the Morabindaras, whom Rodrigo de Narvaez, Alcade of Antecara, took and carried prisoner to his castle so that when the husbandman asked him how he did and what ailed him, he answered word for word as the prisoner Abinderas replied to Rodrigo de Narvaez in the Diana of George de Montemayor, where that adventure is related, applying it so properly to his purpose that the countryman wished himself anywhere than within the hearing of such strange nonsense and being now fully convinced that his neighbor's brains were turned, he made all the haste he could to the village to be rid of him. Don Quixote in the meantime thus went on, you must know, Don Rodrigo de Narvaez, that this beautiful Zarifa, of whom I give you an account, is at present the most lovely Dulcinea del Toboso, for whose sake I have done, still do, and will achieve the most famous deeds of chivalry that ever were, are, or ever shall be seen in the universe. Good sir, replied the husbandman, I am not Don Rodrigo de Narvaez, nor the Marquis of Mantua, but Pedro Alonso by name, your worship's neighbor, nor are you Baldwin, nor Abinderes, but only that worthy gentleman, Senior Quixada. I know very well who I am, answered Don Quixote, and what's more, I know that I may not only be the persons I have named, but also the twelve peers of France, nay, and the nine worthies all in one, since my achievements will outrival not only the famous exploits which made any of them singly illustrious, but all their mighty deeds accumulated together. Thus discoursing, they at last got near their village about sunset, 
but the countryman stayed at some distance till it was dark, that the distressed gentleman might not be seen so scurvily mounted, and then he led him home to his own house, which he found in great confusion. The curate and the barber of the village, both of them Don Quixote's intimate acquaintances, happened to be there at that juncture, as also the housekeeper, who was arguing with them, what do you think, pray, good Dr. Perez, said she, for this was the curate's name, what do you think of my master's mischance? Neither he, nor his horse, nor his target, lance, nor armor, have been seen these six days. What shall I do, wretch that I am? I dare lay my life, and it is as sure as I am a living creature, that those cursed books of errantry, which he used to be always poring upon, have set him beside his senses, for now I remember I have heard him often mutter to himself that he had a mind to turn knight-errant and ramble up and down the world to find out adventures. His niece added, addressing herself to the barber, you must know, Mr. Nicholas, that many times my uncle would read you those unconscionable books of disventures for eight and forty hours together, then away he would throw his book, and drawing his sword, he would fall a-fencing against the walls. And when he had tired himself with cutting and slashing, he would cry he had killed for giants as big as any steeples, and the sweat which he put himself into, he would say was the blood of the wounds he had received in the fight, then would he swallow a huge jug of cold water, and presently he would be as quiet and as well as ever he was in his life. And he said that this same water was a sort of precious drink brought him by the sage Esquife, a great magician and his special friend. Now, it is I who am the cause of all this mischief, for not giving you timely notice of my uncle's raving, that you might have put a stop to it ere it was too late, and have burnt all these excommunicated books, for there are I do not know how many of them that deserve as much to be burnt as those of the rankest heretics. I am of your mind, said the curate, and verily tomorrow shall not pass over before I have fairly brought them to a trial, and condemned them to the flames, that they may not minister occasion to such as would read them, to be perverted after the example of my good friend. The countryman, who, with Don Quixote, stood without, listening to all this discourse, now perfectly understood the cause of his neighbor's disorder, and, without any more ado, he called out, open the gates there, for the Lord Baldwin, and the Lord Marquis of Mantua, who is coming sadly wounded, and for the Moorish Lord Abinderas, whom the valorous Don Rodrigo de Narvaez, Alcade of Antecara, brings prisoner. At which words they all got out of doors, and the one finding it to be her uncle, and the other to be her master, and the rest their friend, who had not yet alighted from the ass, because indeed he was not able, they all ran to embrace him, to whom Don Quixote, forbear, said he, for I am sorely hurt, by reason that my horse failed me. Carry me to bed, and, if it be possible, let the enchantress Urganda be sent for to cure my wounds. Now, quoth the housekeeper, see whether I did not guess right, on which foot my master halted, come, get to bed, I beseech you, and, my life for yours, we will take care to cure you without sending for that same Urganda. A hearty curse, I say, Light upon those books of chivalry that have put you in this pickle. 
whereupon they carried him to his bed and searched for his wounds, but could find none, and then he told them he was only bruised, having had a dreadful fall from his horse Rosinante while he was fighting ten giants, the most outrageous and audacious upon the face of the earth. Ho, ho, cried the curate, are there giants too in the dance? Nay, then, we will have them all burnt by tomorrow night. Then they asked the Don a thousand questions, but to everyone he made no other answer, but that they should give him something to eat, and then leave him to his repose. They complied with his desires, and then the curate informed himself at large in what condition the countryman had found him, and having had a full account of every particular, as also of the knight's extravagant talk, both when the fellow found him, and as he brought him home, this increased the curate's desire of effecting what he had resolved to do next morning, at which time he called upon his friend, Mr. Nicholas the Barber, and went with him to Don Quixote's house.